Welcome to Media Voices, everybody, and our special climate reporting focused episode. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. This is unexpectedly the last in our series of deep dives looking at key media moments from the past year that have shaped the industry over the past 12 months. Um, Every single episode we've been joined by a media expert and this week we're delighted to say that we're joined by Mira Selva who is the CEO of Internews Europe and co-founder of the Oxford Climate Journalism Network at the Reuters Institute. Mira, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat. I'm very delighted to be here. And the topics we've discussed this season will all be featured in our annual Media Moments 2022 report, which is being released this week, November the 30th. And we're actually having a virtual launch event on Wednesday with BuzzFeed's Caroline Fenner, Adweek's Stephen Lepetak and Paul's Ludovine Packet joining us on the panel. Um, you can pre-register to receive the report if you're listening before Wednesday. Um, if you're listening after the 30th, uh, it's exactly the same link to download it. And that's voices.media slash mm22. And if you pop your details in there, we'll send you an invite to the event as well. Uh, should you miss it, um, we're going to be releasing the event on YouTube and as a podcast the following week, so there'll be a chance to catch up, um, although we do hope to see you there on Wednesday. This season and the Media Moments 2022 report would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, Pool. Pool is a membership and subscription suite used by leading publishers around the world. You can find out more about them as well as lots of useful case studies and benchmarking tools at Pool, that's triple O, pool.tech. And we'll link to them from our show notes at Voices.media. In previous years, when we've done the Media Moments report, we focused on climate as a sort of subset of the other sections of the article. Because obviously, even though it is all-encompassing, often we found that there wasn't necessarily enough to write about. But this year, I think we've all been delighted to see a bit of a sea change in how media organisations, collectives and organisations are actually approaching climate um, as a not just a topic to be written about and to be kind of shared with an audience, but also in terms of how climate coverage is being monetized and what that actually means for the future of climate coverage. 2022 has seen much of the developments around climate journalism come from cross-industry organizations and collectives rather than those solo newspapers, newsletters, and some of those individual reporters. To what extent, Mira, do you think that we have seen a bit of a, a sea change in how climate is covered this year? We've seen a massive change in the way industry covers climate, partly because extreme weather events have become far more frequent and far more dramatic. And this is both events like the terrible floods in Pakistan, but also the storms that were destroying bridges in Florida. And then in the UK, we just see extreme weather on a more frequent basis. So people are seeing this literally outside your window. And if journalism's point is to look out the window and tell you whether it's raining, well, it's raining. We're also seeing that audiences are making it clear that they want more reporting on this subject. Climate change is a topic that really appeals to younger audiences. It's taken far too long for editors to understand that the topic is fundamental to the way people see the world. If you're a teenager, the climate crisis is the equivalent of the nuclear crisis or the kind of fears of the Cold War. They're the things that make you wonder if you're going to grow up into a world at all. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrifying but realistic way of looking at it, the fact that it is now existential for kind of younger audiences. I wonder to what extent have we all seen um, a, a, an increasing focus on climate within kind of the newspaper industry. One of the things that we saw, and I'm sure it was this year, but it certainly wasn't much before. And I think it was Wolfgang Blau that wrote a thing about after COVID, when everyone became a COVID reporter. Mm. So every, you know, whether you were reporting on science or business or health or even sport, COVID factored in your coverage. And what Wolfgang was arguing was that now. Everyone should be a climate reporter. Um, 
that because of the because of the enormity of the challenges that we're all facing with it, um, that everyone needs to find that angle and needs to report that angle. So just having a couple of reporters in the corner that's your climate desk isn't enough anymore. Mm. And I think that conversation properly, properly started this year. So yeah, I, I do think there's been a change. So it's it's more of a horizontal than a vertical network. It's something that's across every type of reporting. You know where I've actually seen it quite a lot this year is in sports coverage. Because yeah. obviously it's some, you know, a, a in terms of like fans going out to places and in terms of like greenwashing of destinations, but also in terms of how, um, you know, extreme heat, extreme weather is going to disrupt sport. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think I'm in a World Cup in Qatar where they're actually trying to air condition the stadiums sort of brings up front and center <laughs> yeah and we've seen as well a couple of the newspapers that we would never have thought would have you know gone in on this so earlier in the year i know the sun nominally at least launched a, uh, a kind of green vertical so they're talking about climate as well we can talk about that in more detail and whether we believe that is authentic in a little bit esther what would you say have been some of those key trends around climate coverage and journalism that you've seen over the past year um I mean, I, I'll probably speak mostly for the UK because it, 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 it feels like it's been a bit of a kind of benchmark here in the UK, mainly because um, we broke our record temperatures in July by not just a degree or two, by four degrees. Um, I, I wasn't actually, uh, we, we were on the coast when it hit 40 in London, but that, that was, I think, quite a wake up call for even people who've just sort of, you know, not not climate deniers necessarily, but people that have just sort of been like, you know, it's not my problem. Well, actually, if you're sitting, living through that kind of thing, that is not a normal temperature for the UK. Can um, I just say, though, it wasn't a wake-up call because you couldn't sleep at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that, in a way, it, I think it does feel a little bit like a lot of the efforts at the moment are, are a little bit too little too late. Like, like it is on our doorstep now. It, it has started and that in, that feels quite. I, I suppose I don't really know how publishers should approach that because you don't want to. We've also seen this year sort of huge issues with news avoidance. People sort of generally tuning out of, of bad news, and it gets to the point like, what, what can we do about it? And and that I think is still something that climate journalism has has, has got a long way to go on. It's not just reporting. We are you know we are at the start of possibly the biggest existential threat to mankind. It's it's what can we do about it? Mm. So I know we'll, we'll talk about this as well, but I, I saw in February the Financial Times did a news game, which was designed to get people into you know understanding what it is required to get to net zero by 2050 by actually putting people through this through their paces and making them make decisions around things like uh, carbon offsetting versus you know the the potential political costs of doing so, which isn't a one to one model. Obviously, it can it can never possibly be, but it was a really fun way of going about it. So, Mira, do you think we've seen experimentation in how newspapers and organisations are actually trying to communicate the climate? crisis to people as well as just doing more of it. Yes, absolutely. I think we've seen brilliant, innovative visual journalism to try and illustrate the climate crisis. We've seen phenomenal data journalism. I think it's one area where we've seen incredible changes and also news games and visualizations. I think it goes to a fundamental point, though, which you mentioned, Esther, about not wanting to put people off news and news avoidance is a growing issue. And with climate change reporting in particular, the research tends to show that people react best when the reporting is um, accompanied by action. So the idea that there is something going on, here's what you can do about it. Now, I want to focus a little bit on the here's what you can do about it, because it's very easy to run campaigns saying, recycle, use plastic bags, 
don't fly on your holidays. But we also need action to be put pressure on policymakers, put pressure on governments, put pressure on corporations to fundamentally change the way they do business and the way they view the fossil fuel industry. So it's important that journalists and journalism doesn't get too focused on the individual because that's what we do normally as journalists. We focus on individuals and individual stories and pull back and say this is a systematic crisis that requires a systematic response. And that means ultimately we need to put pressure on the policymakers and the powerful to change their way of thinking as well. And that is beginning to happen, but it's very easy to just say, yes, yes, but let's focus on the recycling. And your know, politicians do that when they say, what, what's, your, what's your green policy? So they'll say, oh, well, I'll take out the recycling or my daughters tell me <laughs> to go jogging instead of taking the car, which is a silly response, really. Yeah, it puts the onus on the public rather than kind of the powerful. It's it's a little bit shifting the blame. Exactly. I wrote the this section of the report, and a lot of what I was writing about was new collectives, new organisations, kind of that were connecting journalists globally, in order to almost join up the dots around climate coverage. So when we're talking about climate coverage, what I suppose challenges, frustrations are shared across the entire uh, journalism industry, and in actually reporting on this, whether that be in the UK, whether that be in Africa, Asia, wherever. I co-founded the Oxford Climate Journalism Network with Wolfgang Blau precisely to address these issues and to address the points Peter raised about the fact that climate change reporting is no longer a vertical, it's a horizontal, and it's something that newsrooms need to apply across the board. So we pulled together 100 journalists for the first cohort, I think we're now on the third cohort, to come together, and they were politics writers, transport writers, business writers, from all around the world. And the idea was to give them skills and and also listen to them about what they needed. What they need is data. Journalists from the Global South were really clear that they understand the topic is important. Their audiences understand the topic is important. They don't always get access to the data they need that's locally relevant. They certainly don't get access to the experts and the scientists that they need. And this is a matter of equity, fairness, but it's also a matter of good journalism in order to get an accurate picture, we need to make sure that we have the information available from all around the world. So that was one point. The other point was getting engagement from their editors and to convince them that this was a important story that was worthy of being on the front page or the top bulletin or on top of the home page. And the third one was far more psychological. They needed a sense of solidarity with each other because climate journalists are subject to a huge amount of trolling online. They come under attack in very polarized societies, but also in less polarized societies. And it has an effect, it has a cumulative effect on their kind of mental well-being and how they're able to do their jobs. So what we found is that they want data, they want access to the scientists, but they also want some support structures in place to recognize the pressures they work under. Actually, one of the things that I, I saw mentioned was, and I think this was in partnership with um, with what you're doing, was that the Global South Climate Database yes. was put together in order to grant access to a, kind of a wider array of climate scientists, mm-hmm. scientists more generally, who will, will actually be able to provide a sort of holistic view of climate in a way that I don't necessarily think we have seen in a couple of ways in the past couple of years, we've seen, you know, it very much parochial on a very local level. We've said, oh, here's what the climate crisis is like for us in the UK. But this actually seems to be designed to provide a much wider look. It was an initiative between the Oxford Climate Journalism Network and Carbon Brief to raise the profile of scientists who are already experts in their field and recognized experts. And they are contributing to the kind of UNFCC and they're, they're part of the discussions, but they're not visible in the media. And that's the point we were trying to address. 
again, speaks to that collaborative nature of climate journalism in 2022. But from a business perspective, Peter and Esther, what do you see as being some of the most important media moments from the past year in terms of individual organisations who are trying to either make a commercial imperative as much as a moral one around climate coverage and actually really develop their own business models that support their climate coverage? I was uh, lucky enough, as I keep telling everyone, to be at Cannes this summer. And uh, one of the things that I saw at Cannes was this, uh, I think it was Extinct- Extinction Rebellion, but it was certainly one of the, the climate activism groups. And they just absolutely bombarded Cannes. Cannes. They, they stormed the beach with these little canoes with um, people dressed up in these costumes of that dog that's in the room that's burning. You know, it's all, you know, like, this everything's is fine. fine. Yeah. Yeah. They went up on the roof of the palais. There was just all sorts going on. And I think what was what was really interesting about that for me is that I could have imagined in the past that activists kind of storming uh, an industry event would have really got short shrift, but they didn't. They really seemed to be a kind of atmosphere, not maybe not welcoming the disruption, but certainly understanding why they were doing it. Mm. And at the same time, Group M is saying, "Okay, well, let's try and get to net zero for advertising targets." Because you know, some of the some of the programmatic and the ad stack stuff is just horrendous from a climate point of view. So there really seemed to be a proper conversation on the commercial side, and it and it's and it wasn't so often you see the greenwashing stuff. You know, we're an environmentally friendly oil company, even though we're drilling <laughs> holes everywhere and whatever. This wasn't like that. This was very much backroom stuff. This is how can we be a better organisation, and, and people might not even know about it. So I thought that was really interesting. It was, it was very much the industry talking to itself, rather than trying to convince the public mm. that they were doing a great job. Esther's suspicious. So I, I think that's that's great in principle. But I can, I can remember reading this story, um, and you know, hearing the quotes from the people that were saying, "Oh, if you know, if publishers haven't got their green credentials ready to show us, we're going to drop them from our, um, you know, our plans." And I was just kind of there, like, that this feels like an awful lot of can talk that is never no. actually going to be put into practice. Can talk, and it's. <laughs> And it's just sort of like, I mean, not only I think if, if advertisers are putting pressure on publishers, like you said, Peter, they've got a long way to go themselves. Um, and yeah, I, I just think there's an awful lot of that, like COP27, which is an awful lot of talk and no trousers. Oof, controversial. <laughs> I would say on COP27, the commitments to f- fossil fuels were disappointing or non-existent, but they did put loss and damage on the agenda in a significant yeah. way and talk about reparations of sorts and this is the first time this has happened and this has happened because there were voices at COP from the countries most affected by climate change and they were being listened to. Those people have put a lot of effort into attending previous COPs and it was quite striking that the summit in Glasgow and the one in Egypt was when I had a sense that they were actually being heard and taken seriously. And actually I think some of that goes back to so like I'm not saying um the climate efforts have been this year but a lot of um publishers in the networks have have started climate efforts sort of within the last 3 to 5 years. That feels like the natural result of it because we're we're hearing stories from people on the ground affected and you know people are actually interested in the stories in those areas there's a lot more connection between you know journalists in the UK and journalists in places like Bangladesh and Pakistan that are affected by flooding and that and that sort of um, that coming together to to surface those stories and to say, you know, what is what is actually going on in these countries that, yes, it's hit the UK 
you know, firsthand this year. But you know, this this has been going in other countries for for, for you know years that have been feeling the effects of what we've been doing, and it, it feels like because a lot more of that is coming together, we're we're seeing a lot more of it. We're seeing a lot more of the effects of it. I've got a question for me around that though. So you bring together these cohorts, some from some from Europe or or America, I'm, I'm assuming, but then other others from the global South, Africa, Asia. Are the are the guys from the south like really frustrated that that the northern hemisphere is just waking up to this? No, they're no, not in these cohort. They feel that obviously the situation is is asymmetrical, but they don't feel frustrated with the north. I would say in these cohorts, they feel frustrated with their own situation, so the lack of access to data and resources. And in terms of journalism, they say we are well trained. In ju- we don't need any more training from media development organizations. Thank you. We don't need anything else. But what we do need is financially viable media outlets in which to publish yeah. our work. Mm-hmm. Because what's the point of being a journalist and getting to write all these stories if you, no one gets to read them? When we're talking about climate, we're talking about it from a slightly wider global lens now. It's something that it has only happened over the past couple of years, as I said before, and particularly this year. Um, and I, it was fascinating putting this section of the report together to hear from so many voices who I otherwise would never have heard from. Because, you know, we have the UK climate correspondents. We've got the, the MIT, to its credit, has done a lot this year around climate. But it was always the same voices. And now it really feels like we're getting that plurality of voices. We're getting a much wider range of people who are talking about this. So, Mira, hearing that... A perspective that I would not have expected is is fascinating. Thank you. It is fascinating <laughs> also that um, the way stories are being framed now is changing. And mm. again, we had journalists from the Pacific Islands saying, we really want to make sure our reporting doesn't just say, we're about to go underwater. This is our home. You can't just keep saying this about us. We exist. We exist. You know. So the stories have to be about what the communities are doing themselves, the, the defences they're building, the ways they're changing their lifestyles to adapt to the changing landscape. But it has to give people agency. And it only journalism only really gives people agency when it's re- done by people who understand those communities and are part of those communities. That is really interesting. That that echoes what the NYT's climate editor, Hannah Fairfield, said, because she was basically saying that the calibre of climate journalism is being raised globally. She said that she will recognise that it's being successful when other news organisations hire more reporters to cover climate issues. I celebrate it because it means that we, and by we, I mean climate journalists, are changing newsrooms and having an impact. So when we're talking about it becoming a horizontal, I think that goes to what you were saying there, Mira, where it is now. Stories that are being told in a way that might actually have an impact rather than just sort of a passive voice about what is happening. Absolutely. And it was the way news Newsroom started hiring business reporters to run the whole news desk, you know, to make them news editors, to make them political correspondents. So there was recognition that financial reporters, business reporters understood numbers, and that was a really useful skill set for reporting across everything. And it'd be really great if we start seeing more of that with climate reporters being recognized for the value they bring to other verticals as well. The other side of that, <laughs> I know Esther wants to talk about this. But the other side of that is just the stupid, stupid, stupid reporting that goes on in some of the UK tabloids. Mm. You know, that idea that, woohoo, we're all going to have really great summers now. And that yeah. has got to change. Somehow that has to change. There was a really good Guardian article by Saffron O'Neill that basically said, yeah, those fun in the sun from yeah. covers are dangerous. They, they're misleading almost. 
Yeah, that, that, I was, was going to say, I'm, I'm surprised we got this far without mentioning the fact that, you know, a lot of the Murdoch papers still are very, very reliant on the fossil fuel money. Mm. Um, and yes, I know you've already mentioned the Sun launched a green vertical, but I mean, they've, they have got years and years and years of minimising what, what's happening with the climate behind them. And they're sort of, um, they've gone from, it's a sort of delayist tactic rather than outright denying it because you know climate change denial is, is very much not okay these days. It's not, brand safe. <laughs> it's not brand safe. Um, it's not brand safe. Sorry, just, Esther, just, I'll, just quickly, we see that in the UK and the tabloids and whatever. Imagine what's going on in the States for Fox mm. News. Yeah. I mean, they've got they've got bigger climate problems than we have at the moment. Can I but just... It's, go ahead, sorry. No, it's good. It, it still feels like there's... This, it's still very, very separated by it depends which papers you read, which publishers you follow as to how much of, as to what kind of tone climate coverage is taking. And that that needs to change still. There was a really interesting initiative in Australia run by David Holmes of Monash University that dealt directly with the uh, Murdoch press. He wanted to check, see how you change attitudes to climate change. So he went to the Murdoch newspapers and outlets to say, can we partner with you and add opinion pieces by climate change scientists, by people who are highlighting the nature of the problem? And we want to do it with you because your audience is climate skeptics and climate deniers. And so this is the audience we really need to use. And, and there was an agreement reached and they ran this initiative and they're still tracking the impact but if you look at what happened in the elections in Australia which turned on the issue of climate change for the mm. first time ever it's incredible really so I fully hear what you're saying about the tabloids and the attitudes but I don't think it's fair to kind of say it's a it's a kind of monolithic block that acts in the same way and that each outlet is responding in the same way because I think what happened in Australia was really interesting that the academics went to the journalists um, that they hate the most basically <laughs> even though they never say that outright but they went to the one they're most sceptical about and say let's work together and what they achieved together was incredible. That plurality of voices again it, it's just making sure that there is and I suppose that it's sort of this virtual circle where as more of the public becomes more aware of this has to live with it more brands want to align with those values of the public want to you know appear in newspapers that also share those values so ultimately we are kind of on the right side of a spiral potentially and we've seen that this year but it's going to take i think to esther's point uh, quite a while because there have been some studies out this year that shows that yeah delayism is the new tactic so i wondered then when we're talking about initiatives that we like and that we want to see more of next year what are we feeling hopeful about when it comes to climate coverage i'm really excited by the climate reporting that we see designed for mobiles, designed to be shared on social media, designed to be consumed in bite-sized packages, but to make people feel part of a community that is doing something about climate change. And I think it's wonderful when it does tie into social activism and when it ties into a concept of citizenship. And it, it mm. helps deal with some of the other issues we're seeing in society of increased polarization, of cynicism in politics, a kind of breaking of trust, and to give people a topic and say, this is important and this is something we pull together on because we need to do it for our own survival, is it's important. And I think it can change how we see our sense of participation in public life. Esther, 
I don't want to bring it down, but I know that you have a news avoidance I issue do. you want to bring up. Um, yeah, so my um, so my media moment is that after the UK after extreme heat in July in the UK, uh, weather forecasters faced unprecedented levels of trolling, according to some of the leading industry figures. Um, I mean, the BBC said that their team had received hundreds of abusive tweets and emails telling them to get a grip as as temperatures in the country hit forty degrees, and I think. <laughs> This is quite a complex issue because, um, as, as we've mentioned earlier in the episode, a lot of publishers are now sort of starting to make that link between heat wave and extreme weather events and climate as is you know this is fact. This is what's this is what's going on, not just a, oh this could be caused by climate change. Like this is caused by climate change, um, but there has in the past couple of, well since what two thousand sixteen just been this relentless news cycle of what's now been dubbed a permacrisis. <laughs> uh, we've gone from, I mean, yeah, since COVID alone, it's like almost every month we're lurching to another sort of new crisis. And there was an awful lot of people sort of saying that, oh, well, you're creating, you know, your fake emergencies so people do as they're told. There were a lot of conspiracy theories like circulating in, in some quite mainstream circles about, um, oh, this has been caused because the government's dispersing substances via aircraft to trap the heat in so that they can kind of keep you compliant and keep you panicked. And although you know, I don't condone conspiracy theories in the slightest, but I, th- I think that goes back to what people like Nick Newman and you know the Reuters reporters said is that if if we report it in such a way that isn't helpful and isn't kind of focusing on some of the explanations behind it. People do very naturally kind of fall into this, oh, well, this is just another crisis. You know, we went, we went almost straight from Ukraine to um, to the climate crisis. Now we're into, you know, cost of living crisis here in the UK. And it just, but it's, and I, and I don't know what we can do about it in a sense, because obviously like these news events happen and we can't not report on it. But people are just so kind of, Tired of bad news. I think that comes back though, to Mira's point about solutions focused rather than mm. just sensationalizing it. Um, and it is, it is actually it's something the BBC did actually do quite a good job of, which is why I'm surprised their reporters were targeted. Is that they had an FAQ page saying, yeah, you know, with with those common issues that came up, and I know Reuters have actually discussed this on a recent conversations episode with us, where they preempt the questions people ask, like like. Was this as bad as the heat wave back in 1970, whatever? No, actually, you know, this is why it's worse. This is what's actually changed. And they were very much taking questions that people had and breaking them down and, and answering them proactively. But that's the profile of the crazies that are always going <laughs> after the BBC. Oh, it wasn't like this in my day. We didn't have central heating. Yeah. We didn't have air conditioning. Blah, blah, blah. That's why the biggest episode we ever had was Mariana Spring, because all the nut jobs were checking out to see what she was saying. <laughs> uh, you know, Peter, I, maybe some of those nut jobs stuck around. We can't be. <laughs> what if the nut jobs make up 90% of our audience? We can't be slagging them off. If you're no, but conspiracy serious, we don't need you. Do you know, the, the, this was really nicely highlighted. The, this kind of example was really nicely highlighted with the, um, the crisis that happened in the hospitals at the end of 2020 with bed availability for COVID. Um, there were all these headlines about, oh, you know, hospitals at a breaking point. And somebody went and they did this research and they pulled up all of these headlines from the last seven years with exactly the same headline every single winter. Mm. And it's like at the end of 2020, there was actually a genuine bed crisis. And the FT did these brilliant charts of it showing, like, yes, this is 10 times worse than previous years. But because 
and I heard on the radio this morning, exactly the same thing is coming back around with the bed crisis in hospitals. Like we need context to this. And it's not, I'm not saying like we shouldn't be reporting on bad news stories or we shouldn't be putting political pressure on, but it needs context because otherwise when, when big things happen, like we have huge extreme weather events in the UK, people are sort of like, oh yeah, but you can go back and see the headlines from you know 2018 when there was that long drought. And it's like, it, it's different, but how do we contextualize that and emphasize that without it sort of being this constant cycle? I think that's to do with two things, which is reporting uncertainty. So understanding that sometimes things change and it was a bed crisis last year for this reason and this year for a different reason or last year was not as bad as we feared it would be, but here's why. But when we wrote the article, Mm -hmm. we were concerned about it. And to say when the facts change, you can report on the facts differently. The second point is about attribution. And so uh, one thing we really looked at um, in in the field of climate change reporting is weather attribution reporting. It's very tempting to say any extreme weather event or any food crisis or famine is related to climate change. And sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. And the danger of saying everything is related to climate change is people stop believing it or it starts becoming overwhelming and you end up thinking nothing can be done. It's all hopeless anyway. So it's very important to be precise and to sometimes say we don't know. It might be related to climate change. It might not. And this is, again, something that I fear that journalists are not good at doing. And now that climate change is a thing. And we all want to jump mm. on that bandwagon. It's really tempting to say this is how we get people's attention to talk about it being how it's related to climate change when it might not be. That actually reminds me, and I'd seen, I've forgotten which publisher did it, but a publisher did a piece earlier this week. So we've had a particularly mild November here in the UK. Like it's, we've had days of like 17 degrees. And um, there were quite a few publications that are like, oh, you know, this is a result of climate change. And this publication said, actually, this particular event isn't. This is just because the, the um, Gulf Stream shifted a little bit and it's caused this. Um, you know, this warm weather plume. Um, and they said, you know, that actually is not related to climate change, but, you know, these events earlier in the year were. And I thought that was quite um, quite brave to point that out and to say, because it would have been very, very easy to sort of do another hysterical warmest November on record, you know, due to climate change. And actually this particular thing didn't happen to be caused by that. Well, that's. I think that speaks to that shifting attitude. There was there was a really great quote from uh, Wolfgang Blau, not to harp on about Wolfgang every single five minutes on this episode, but he said, um, "I've often in August he said I've often interacted with people at news organisations where they know perfectly well about the size of the risk we're facing from climate change and who at the same time make very short term opportunistic decisions in their framing of the issue based on what they thought would sell the most copies, and that obviously goes both ways." Because obviously you then have people who are, you know, typically right-leaning who say, no, no, we're just going to do fun of the sun type headlines. But then you also have people on the left who go, well, actually, you know, we know our audience is invested in that. So let's publish a, a front page about this. So that accurate reporting, which is all predicated on, you know, Tamira's point, having access to experts is is vital, like you said, Esther, to kind of mitigate that problem of news avoidance and mitigate the this hopelessness that we all feel in the face of just constant crises. I would also say the access to experts is not as straightforward as giving every journalist the telephone number of the scientists they need, because scientists (laughs) themselves complain massively about how they're treated in the media when they do agree to interviews. They're carefully considered (laughs) minutely researched Data is simplified, distorted, manipulated. They're made to look like fools in front of their peers, which they care about far more than how they look to the public. Mm. And they also worry that it 
will do real damage to their work and to their funding prospects. And again, they they really think that journalists aren't good at understanding the scientific principles of uncertainty and how you build mm. knowledge in the scientific arena, which is to test hypotheses. Yeah, it, it, just these journalists going, well, and I'm a journalist, I'm guilty of this to some extent, going, well, it's a simple question, yes or no. <laughs> exactly. Is it good? Is it bad? Yes or no. I mean, yeah, the planet, the climate, the way it all interacts is very, very complex and scientists don't agree about, you know, are we... Are, is a one degree rise irreversible? What are the consequences going to be even for the next couple of years? And that that has sometimes been portrayed time and time again as like all oh, the experts are on opposite sides of this. You know, they don't agree. And actually, it's it takes quite a lot of sort of quite subtle, nuanced reporting in order to present some of the things that that the research says. And I can understand why they sometimes just don't want to speak <laughs> about it. Yeah, and that's not even getting into sort of the academic publication side of things, which is its own. Gala fish. Like you said, Esther, it's, it's endlessly complicated. I know that we're going to be back here this time next year talking about this, talking about the progress that we've seen made, and even, unfortunately, probably some of the backsliding that we've seen done as well. But Mira, thank you so much for coming on and having this chat with us. If anybody who's been listening wants to reach out, find out more about any of your projects, where's the best place for them to do so? The Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism website and its newsletter will give details of the Oxford Climate Journalism Network. Internews also runs the Earth Journalism Network that provides grants, fellowships, Fellowships, trainings, awards for good climate journalism, and it's really worth looking at those projects. And that's on the Internews website. And those two are the main channels for us. Thank you. Very quickly, one question from here before she goes: Are you optimistic? Yes, I am actually. There's no other way to be, is there? I'm not a pessimist by nature, so there's no point getting it just for this. (laughs) Nailed Uh, that. That feels great. That actually makes me very hopeful. Good. Um, And as this is our last episode of the season, thank you so much to Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for sponsoring this season of the Media Voices podcast and our Media Moments 2022 report, which is out this week. Um, You can check out their tools, tips and tricks for paywalls and subscriber retention over at at (laughs) pool.tech. That's P-O-O-L.tech. And tune into our launch event with Pool's Ludovine Paquette, Adweek Stephen Lepertak, and BuzzFeed's Caroline Fenner on Wednesday, November the 30th. You can sign up for that. You can pre-register for the report or download it if it's after Wednesday by going to voices.media slash mm22. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the season. We've experimented with the format a little bit. If you do have any feedback, we want to hear it. Would you like us to carry on doing this? Do you want us to go back to the old thing? Do you want us to try something completely new? You can get us on news at voices.media if you have any feedback. But for now, thank you so much for listening to this season of Media Voices. Tune in next week for the audio from our live uh, publication event of the Media Moments 2022 report. But for now, thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.